Matthew 20, verse 17. This is God's Word. Now, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, He took the twelve disciples aside and said to them, We're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn Him to death and will turn Him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, He will be raised to life. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, and kneeling down, asked a favor of Him. What is it you want? He asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. When the ten heard this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Amen. We trust that God will bless to us this reading from His Word. Lovely. Well, let's take our Bibles and turn uh, to Matthew chapter 20, those verses that we read earlier. We're going to think about uh, that passage. Page 988, if you've got one of the Pew Bibles, I'm sure you would love to be great at something. Maybe you are great at something. Maybe, maybe there's something, though, that you would just love to be great at. Maybe you know people who are great at one thing or another. You, you know somebody who's a great musician. You, 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 you sit and you watch them perhaps play here on a Sunday, and you just think, look at the way that they, they bring that instrument to life. Maybe you know somebody in the sporting arena. You, you know somebody who's a great golfer. Every strike seems clean and consistent. They read the greens so well. Or, or you know somebody who has great people skills. And, and uh, I was just hearing this week about someone who had to give feedback in, in a difficult meeting to someone, and somebody else was telling me about it. They had been there, and they said, oh, they're just so great at that sort of thing. And I'm sure that you, like me, would love to be great at something, even anything, you know? just something. But what about being great as a Christian? It's maybe not a way of looking at the Christian life that we're used to, but Jesus does talk about it. He talks about great, what greatness is, and it's perhaps not what we would think. It's not about how many people we've led to Christ. It's not about what position we hold in the church or how many organizations we're involved in or how many hours we've put into this or that. Jesus takes us in a different direction altogether. You see it here in Matthew 20, 26. 
whoever wants to become great amongst you must be your servant. Greatness, according to Jesus, is about being a servant. It's not about how high you can get. It's about how low you can get. And that so goes against the grain of our society and the grain of our hearts. And that's why we need to look carefully at what Jesus says here. So, so much, you know, you, you, the, the way the world is at the moment, it, it tends to encourage us, just go with what you feel. But so much of what we feel takes us in a different direction to what Jesus says. So we need to listen to him. Well, there are two big themes that are running through this passage this morning. On the one hand, it tells us about what Jesus has done for us. That, that's not maybe perhaps the major theme in this passage, but we're going to look at it in more detail this morning, particularly because it's appropriate for us as we come around the Lord's table. And then there's also the theme of what we must not do. So, so what Jesus has done and what we must do. Jesus has given himself and we must not prefer ourselves. That, 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 those are the two sort of points that we're looking at this passage with this morning. Jesus has been selfless. We must not be selfish. So that's what we see here, and that's what we're going to jump into. So first of all, what Jesus has done, Jesus has given himself. We've been looking at Matthew on and off in these morning services for some time now. You might remember that we're in that part of the gospel where Jesus is journeying from the, the north of the country down south towards Jerusalem, and he's coming here for the last time. Flick over a couple of pages, you'll find yourselves in the, the Holy Week narrative where, where everything is happening uh, after the triumphal entry leading up to the crucifixion. And Jesus is in absolutely no doubt of what all of this will mean for him. And he communicates what lies ahead to his disciples in verse 17. He took the 12 disciples aside and said to them, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. So you see, in a remarkable economy of words, Jesus describes exactly what will lie ahead from the horror of his passion, the victory of his resurrection. Now, you'll notice that Jesus begins by saying, we're going up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was in the mountains. It was usually, therefore, a journey that meant that you went up to the hill physically. And uh, it was a Jew's desire, even responsibility, to make pilgrimage to Jerusalem, especially at Passover times. Some of the Psalms were specially designed to be sung as pilgrims would approach Jerusalem. Psalms of ascent, we call them. So Psalm 122, for example, I rejoiced with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing in your gates, O Jerusalem. So normally, you see, these words, we're going up to Jerusalem, would be words that were associated with celebration, with blessing, with devotion. But for Jesus, they're associated with torture and death. We're going up to Jerusalem, and this is what's going to happen. It's not the first time the disciples have been told this. It's the third of four occasions where Jesus 
warns them very specifically about what's going to take place, and persistently they don't get it. The events of Easter come as a shock to them, even though Jesus has been incredibly clear. But we see, you see, what Jesus has done here. He is voluntarily laying down His life. He knows exactly what's ahead, and you begin to, to think about that. How would it be as you knew that each step that you took on that journey was going to take you a step closer to torture and death? What has Jesus done? He has selflessly laid down His life. The story goes on to, to make what He does that bit more clear. Because the request comes, and we look at this in a moment, the request comes from James and John through their mother to sit at his right hand and his left hand in the kingdom. And Jesus says to them in verse 22, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Now, in a very general sense, this picture of drinking the cup referred to what lay ahead of you in the plan of God. Sometimes people would say in our culture today, well, you know, we'll see what, the, 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 uh, what, what cards I'm dealt. It's not a very Christian phrase at all, but, but that sort of idea. We'll see what lies ahead, what destiny has for me. Well, of course, in this religious society, it, it was drink the cup. What, what does God have for me? Can you, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink, Jesus says? Can you, can you do what God is asking me to do? Are you up for joining me in the path that lies ahead for me? And James and John have no clue about what really lies ahead for them, and they say, yes, we can do it. Now, Jesus, you notice in verse 23, says, you will indeed drink from my cup, not my cup, but, but uh, from my cup, which means, of course, that they will have suffering to endure. James would be the first a disciple of the twelve to be martyred, and John would be exiled to Patmos. But of course, Jesus knew that the cup that God had for him, the cup which involves suffering from which the other disciples, in a sense, would drink, that for him it was very specific. But Because for him it was a cup not just of suffering, but of wrath. In just a few days, Jesus would be in Gethsemane, and there He will be praying, Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. And my Father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may Your will be done. Now, the picture of the cup, when we're thinking about what it meant for Jesus was not just a general picture of what God has in plan for me. It was a picture of the wrath of God. A couple of places in the Old Testament, for example, Psalm 75 refers to this. It is God who judges. He brings one down. He exalts another. In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out, and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. It's a picture of judgment. Isaiah 51, God is telling His people that 
his judgment on them has passed. And this is what he says. This is what the sovereign Lord says, your God who defends his people. See, I have taken out of your hand the cup that made you stagger. From that cup, the goblet of my wrath, you will never drink again. So, so the cup you see here for Jesus is a symbol of the, the anger of God, particularly the anger of God against sin. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus bows his head before his Father and says, if it's possible, Father, may this cup be taken from me. So you start to see the picture. Jesus knows exactly what lies ahead of him. He knows that the desertion and betrayal of the disciples is going to be hard to bear. The, the, the physical pain of the cross will be hard to deal with. But beyond that, on the cross, Jesus is going to bear the anger of God against sin. And on that, that time, the, 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 the sins of, of His pe people in every age we would be piled upon the shoulders of Jesus, as it were, the anger of God burning against them. Jesus carries it. I think whenever we do the Christianity Explored course, we, we talk about there at that moment, Jesus becomes, in God's eyes, the most sin-covered person who's ever lived because He's carrying your sin and mine sins of millions and millions of people. And Jesus is overcome with anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane because the prospect of, of taking this on His shoulders and bearing the judgment against sin is so overwhelming. And, and so He says, is there any other way? And here, even though that is some time off, He knows exactly that this is the cup that lies ahead for Him. Can you drink the cup that I will drink? We're going to sit around this table later on, and in our hearts, we are going to say, I'm sure, thank you, Lord. It was a hard and painful thing that He faced upon the cross for you and for me, and yet that greatest cost was not physical, but it was spiritual. The thing that took place was not seen, it was unseen. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What has Jesus done? He has selflessly laid down his life. He has also borne the wrath of God. He has drained the cup of God's wrath so that we might drink from the cup of salvation. He has drained the full curse of God in that cup that we might have a cup that overflows with blessing. And is, as He does this, we are set free from that curse. We are able to escape God's wrath through Him. And, and that is brought out in that last statement in, in our reading, verse 28, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. You see, in doing this, He, he ransoms us. We know that a ransom is, is a price paid to set someone free. We think of it in terms of a kidnapping, perhaps, but, but maybe in those days it was particularly thought of in terms of the, the price paid to set a slave free. 
One of the things that could happen if things went badly for you in those days was that you could bankrupt yourself, and indeed you and your whole family would end up in slavery. You would, you would end up being put into that situation as a sort of a, a situation of last resort. And it was possible for someone to come and to pay the ransom to set you free. When I think of that, I can't help but be reminded of a wonderfully bright Christian girl that I met in India 15 years ago. Her story was, was dreadful. She was then working with Tear Fund, which was fantastic. But her story began in a very different circumstance. She'd been sold into prostitution in Mumbai when she was 14 years old. Her life was beyond unspeakable. And some years later, after working in the brothels of Mumbai for Mumbai for, for years, she came into contact with Christians, a tear fund partner who were working with prostitutes in that area. And she eventually became a Christian. But one of the ways in which the, 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 the brothels kept the girls that worked for them was that they, they managed all the books, as it were, and they, they kept these girls in terrible debt. And so, Esther was in debt and couldn't leave. And the tear fund partner gathered up some money, and they bought her. They bought her for 80 pounds. What had they done? They'd paid a ransom to set her free. And you see, Jesus does this for His people on a much grander slave scale. We are enslaved to, to sin and to death, and He sets us free by paying a ransom, his, his very own life. What has Jesus done? He has given Himself. He's given Himself to go to the cross, given Himself to pay, uh, to, to deal with God's wrath, given Himself to set us free. And in all this, He has served us rather than Himself. He has taken the selfless road so that we might be blessed. He has preferred our situation above His own. What has Jesus done? He has given Himself. So when we take the bread and wine today, we ought to be full of gratitude. And if you're here today and you're not yet a believer, how can you say, this is not for me? You, 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 you know you cannot say, I don't need this. You know that you do. You, you cannot say, it's not enough. It's everything you need. He gave Himself for us. What else would you have Him do that you might say to Him, that's enough? We said there were two themes running through this passage. One was what Jesus has done for us. The other is what, was, what we must not do and we must not prefer ourselves because we see in stark contrast of what Jesus has done, the actions of the disciples here. Specifically, James and John and, and their mother, who, who come and make this incredibly inappropriate request, seeing as it's set against the description of what Jesus has done. The mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, comes and asks Jesus that they might sit at his right hand and his left in the kingdom. Back in chapter 19, verse 28, Jesus had spoken about the disciples sitting on thrones and ruling with him, and, and so their heads are, are starting to 
turn all of this over, and they're thinking, well, if there's 12 thrones, there are going to be two of them that are going to be on the right and the left of Jesus. And that, those are going to be the really important ones. And, and somebody's going to have to sit in those thrones. We want it to be us. And they, so they, they say, you know, if you can't get something done, you, you can get your mom to do it for you. And they say, mom, it looks like this uh, their mother was a, these were cousins of Jesus, perhaps. Their mother was a, a sister of the mother of Jesus, Mary. And so they say, Mom, would you, would you bring this up with Jesus? Would you, would you speak first? And so she makes the request. And Jesus then talks to all of them about it, as it were, to say, is this, is this really what's on your hearts? It's incredibly self-seeking, isn't it? Me first. And not only does this betray a problem in their hearts and in their mother's hearts, of course, who doesn't challenge them, but it brings then a disunity within the disciple band because the others hear about it and there's uproar. And it's not as if they are all that much better because at times they are found arguing amongst themselves, all of them, who is the greatest. But you see, these attitudes so disunity and so Jesus draws them together to speak to them about this. Verse 25, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. You see, in the Gentile world, in the pagan world, power mattered, rank mattered. And, and, and those who were great in, in that world's eyes, they got on top and they pushed around everyone who was below them. They lorded over them, as they said. And that's how the pagan world lived, how it strives, what it strives for. And Jesus says, crucial words, not so with you. The pagan world, you see, had built itself around the unchecked desires of the human heart. That's what the natural world does. It elevates what we naturally want. And here you see the trouble was that the disciples were, were just living like that. They're living as if Jesus had never called them, and they're living as if Jesus was not setting out on a path that was going to redeem them. And you see what he's saying here. The, the, these two lessons are, 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 these two points are like two opposing lanes of traffic. Jesus is going one way, but they're going the other. And Jesus is saying, can't you see it? You're going the wrong direction. You need to turn around. And you need to turn around to Jesus' pattern of life. Whoever wants to become great amongst you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Some of you might visit some of the stately homes over the summer. You get a chance to, to go to some National Trust property, and you'll, you'll see this incredible house with the, all of its rooms, and, and, and you'll maybe do a tour, and there'll be the, 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 the suite for the, the family, and the master bedroom, and the smoking room, and the and the, the various lounges and so on. And away down in the bottom, there'll be these tiny little rooms and, and there'll be the servants' quarters. And, and you'll walk in and walk out and say, wow, how great it would have been to, to live here and to have all of this stuff and all of these servants picking up my socks and doing all this stuff. And Jesus is saying, better to be a servant than a master. Better to be low than high. 
You see, here's the pattern of my life, Jesus says. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, he's, he's saying, are you really following me? Because being a disciple does not just involve saying a prayer to ask Jesus into your life to, to save you. It means falling into step with him. Patterning, patterning your life after his. And his life is one where he gives himself away. He lays himself down. He pours himself out, and he says, follow me and follow that. And so the question that is implied to these disciples is how can we strive for power and position and petty advantage over one another in the light of the shape of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ? And surely that question rings down through the ages to his church today. Are these the things that shape our lives? Because, friends, the gospel does not only save us. It's also there to transform us and shape us the sacrifice of Jesus is first our soul's hope, but then is to become our lives' pattern. And part of what we need to do as we come around the table today is to say, Lord, thank you for doing this for me. Make me like you more and more. I'm going to finish with a couple of words from Philippians 2, Paul picks this up. Philippian church was struggling with its relationships, people preferring themselves over one another. And he says, remember Jesus. This is what it says. If, this is from the message. If you've gotten anything out of following Christ, if His love has made any difference in your life, if being in a community of the Spirit means anything to you, if you have a heart, if you care, then do me a favor, Paul says. Agree with each other. Love each other. Be deep-spirited friends. Don't push your way to the front. Don't sweet-talk your way to the top. Put yourself aside and help others go ahead. Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage. Forget yourselves long enough to lend a helping hand. Think of yourselves the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. Let's pray together. Lord, if we're honest, we look at these stories and part of us condemns the disciples, but part of us knows that, that we'd have been just the same because we know that there's that within us that strives for position, that wants to build ourselves up, that prizes our reputation, that wants to think of ourselves above others and prefer ourselves over others. Lord, today we thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ
did not do that when he came for us. That, that we are here because of that great love and that great self-giving. So help us, Lord, to have this gospel not only save us, but also shape us. Lord, today as we pray for ourselves, we remember those that we care for and we love. Lord, some of us are, are, are going through big pressures and tough times. <clears throat> we ask that something of the, the richness of the Lord Jesus Christ will be our experience as we journey this particular path, as we drink this cup. Some of those that we know, Lord, are going through difficult times. We remember those who today are ill or those who are in hospital, those who are bereaved. We remember especially the family of Patricia McGavick, praying that you'll be with them and be with them and her friends on Tuesday particularly. Others, Lord, around the world, our brothers and sisters, those that we will share eternity with, and today their lives are difficult on a scale that we can hardly begin to imagine. Help us, Lord, to serve them as we pray for them, as we support them. We ask, O oh God, that you will work in our hearts deeply, that our trust in you might not only be a surface thing, but something that changes us from the inside out. Hear us, Lord, we pray, for we ask in Jesus' name.